Aloha. It's Tuesday, November 21st. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. After a decade and a half, the State Agriculture Department recently resumed a pesticide take-back program for farmers, landscapers, and commercial operators. Next stop is Maui. As our population ages, we hear more about dementia cases when our loved ones lose their way. And sharing the story of our threatened and endangered native birds, we'll learn about a new documentary about the few remaining akakiki on Kauai. Plus, our Veterans Voices series with StoryCorps comes to a close. We share our final story before this weekend's hour-long special. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Adam Williams is an environmental health specialist with the Department of Agriculture. He is leading the charge on a program to get hazardous pesticides that commercial operators may have sitting around disposed of safely. The recent Maui wildfires that consumed everything in their path only raised our awareness of what could go up in flames, causing toxic fumes and leaving behind hazardous residue. From farms to golf courses, chemicals there could turn deadly. After a 15-year pause, the state is resuming collecting old pesticides. It recently held a collection event on Oahu, netting nearly 8,000 pounds of hazardous chemicals. The program moves to Maui next month, and this Friday is the deadline to register. Here's Williams with What You Need to Know. The Oahu event took place on Saturday, September 30th. We had approximately 50 participants show up, and we were able to dispose of approximately 7,700 pounds of pesticide waste. Well, that's great. Get it out of harm's way. Definitely, and that was the most important part, was protecting human health and the environment. And with Maui, now you've got another day set aside. We just saw what happened with the wildfires and dealing with the aftermath and all chemicals that are in the ash. So it really is something that people need to pay attention to. That is correct. The reason for the pesticide disposal program is because most commercial applicators such as farmers or pest control operators, they do not have an affordable avenue to dispose of waste pesticides. So without a proper avenue for disposal, these pesticide waste, they continue to pose a risk to our water quality, our surrounding natural resources, you know, and you and I, our health, especially in the event if there's like a fire, uh, some type of a leak or a severe weather event. So this event itself is going to help provide these commercial users of pesticides with an opportunity to safely dispose of any canceled, suspended, unwanted, or unlabeled pesticides and pesticidal waste. Now, only pesticides will be accepted. Items such as like uh, explosive materials, gasoline or motor oil, paints, fertilizers, or any kind of gas cylinders these types of items will not be accepted. And usually the, the counties have some kind of take-back program for a lot of residential waste. Yes, so that is the called the Household Hazardous Waste Program. Almost every county has 
some type of take-back program for residents. So if you're like a homeowner, you can reach out to your local county disposal agency and find out more information about that. So this program is not for homeowners. This program is only going to be for commercial users of pesticides. For example, eligible participants for this program will be farms such as nurseries or greenhouse operators, crops or livestock. Additionally, pesticide dealers or licensed pest control operators, golf course operators, uh, landscape professionals, and any certified pesticide applicator will be able to participate in this program. Also, if there's like a retired farmer or someone who is no longer in business and they don't want to use pesticides or they have pesticide stock that they need to dispose of, um, they will also be eligible for this program. Okay, and it might be that they have some stuff in rusty containers in an old shed somewhere or a warehouse, and you, you just want to get all that cleaned up. That is correct. The HDOA is sponsoring this disposal event. However, we are working in conjunction with our contractor. Um, they're called Enviro Services and Training Center. So together, we are putting on this program. Now, for anybody who's going to be listening to this interview, it's imperative that they take advantage of this event because in four days will be the registration deadline for the Maui disposal event. Now, with Thanksgiving on the horizon, our contractor's office will be closed. So if there is someone who plans to participate but they have not registered yet, it's important within the next few days to get that registration form in. Now, they can still email or fax or even by post mail send the registration form in, uh, but it must be at least postmarked or emailed by the registration deadline. The reason I say there's a sense of urgency to participate is because we cannot guarantee that this is going to be a permanent program. Fifteen years ago was the last time we had this program. We don't want to have someone miss out on this opportunity, so it is imperative that any of the listeners to this interview, if you're interested or you know someone who's interested in participating in this program, to get that registration form submitted. And it's a very simple registration process. You can call our contractor and viral services directly or you can just google hdoa pesticide disposal program that will take you directly to the disposal program webpage, and then from there you can download the form complete the form and send it to the contractor so it's a very simple straightforward registration process each participant or free can dispose of up to 250 pounds of these canceled suspended unwanted or unlabeled pesticides I know some listeners may have some unknowns. Unknowns will still qualify. They'll just need to be tested to confirm that they are pesticide products. And the testing is also free, so we're not charging anyone to have their products tested. You know, I want people to know that this is a very unique opportunity to responsibly dispose of these pesticide materials without incurring any cost. I mean, our main aim is to just support the community and the environment. We want to provide a safe and cost-effective disposal solution for commercial operators. Now, one of the keys for this program, there is no enforcement action associated with disposing of any of these pesticides. So if there are any listeners who are concerned that the HDOA is going to bring some type of enforcement action for having old pesticides, please do not worry about that. We are here because we want these pesticides removed. We're not here to set you up in order to bring some type of enforcement action against you. Participants, you will remain anonymous. Any information that is submitted to our contractor stays with our contractor. They don't share that information with us. And HDOA does not want you to send the registration form to us. 
please send that directly to the contractor. No information that could personally identify the business will be published. Uh, now, the event location is only going to be provided to registered participants. So if you did register and your registration form has been accepted by our contractor, they will reach out and give you the exact event location. Now again, time is of the essence, so it's important that folks act immediately because we only have a few more days until the registration deadline. And we want this to be a success, as you mentioned, you know, with the fires that just recently occurred. Within that ash, most likely is some type of pesticide waste. We want to try and remove as much of this stuff in the environment as possible so that we don't have chemicals that are 20, 30, 40 years old sitting in a garage or a pesticide storage somewhere because that can lead to a potential natural disaster or it can hurt the environment or humans. So it is very important that we do have a big turnout. The larger turnout that we have, the more data that we can collect to show that, hey, this is a valuable program, and the public wants this program, and look how much we were able to remove from the environment. And was there anything at the Oahu collection uh, recently that maybe surprised you? Well, after talking with our contractor, you know, Evaro Services, you know, they've been doing this for more than 28 years, ha- hazardous waste management and disposal, um, you know, and they've dedicated a team of experts to this project. And, you know, after talking with them about how the Oahu event. You know, they did mention that we had some products that were 20, 30 years old. There were products in rusty old containers, and they handled everything very professionally. Um, I looked at some of the survey results. Um, Now, the the surveys are also anonymous, so we Mm -hmm. don't know who submitted, but the survey results were also very positive and uh, glowing remarks for our contractor environmental services. So I'm very happy that not only sponsoring this program, but we have a top-notch contractor that does very well. They have more than 28 years of experience doing this, and not mm-hmm. only doing the pesticide disposal program for the Department of Agriculture, uh, they also do all the countywide household hazardous waste events. So our contractor, you know, just working with them, it, it's been uh, a pleasure. And because of them and the public's participation is what is making this uh, event a success. And that was Adam Williams, who was urging Maui farmers and businesses who may have old pesticides on their property to turn them in over to the state free of charge. Friday is the deadline to register to do so. You can find valuable information on the Agriculture Department website about how to safely transport those containers to the Central Maui Collection site. Uh, we'll also have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from the University of Hawaii Foundation, connecting donors to the university in support of research that helps Hawaii now and in the future. More about the campaign for UH for Hawaii at uhfoundation.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm David Bedrick. I'm the author of Revisioning Activism. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about depth, dialogue, and diversity, and bringing that to individual and social change.
beginning Sunday morning at 11. For our reality check today, we focus in on power woes at Halaba Prison. Uh, Honolulu Civil Beats' Chad Blair is on with us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So we have a story by Kevin Dayton, and, and we're talking the Halava, what, medium and high security, right? It's in, as you know, here on Oahu, Halava Valley, and mm-hmm. it is the prison, the, the, the uh, if you will, the, the harshest treatment uh, for people that um, are committed there, unlike OCCC and some of the other jails around town. But yes, it is a prison. And these are electrical problems throughout that facility. Uh, this It seems like at one point last month, Maybe as much as 20% of the cells there the, uh, for the inmates were without power. It, it's not clear uh, when the outages started. It's not clear when they're going to be fixed. Kevin did try and reach out to Tommy Johnson. He's the director of the Public Safety Department, which, of course, oversees jails and prisons. But Johnson declined to speak. They did release a statement saying they're certainly well aware of the problem. They mentioned that it's an aging structure and that they're looking to get resources, meaning money, uh, to deal with the problem. But not too much more was shared besides that from from DPS. Yeah, I mean, it's an aging facility, but it's also like our newest one, right? Yeah, it kind of threw me off, too. Kevin actually mentioned it, that the Halala Correctional Facility facility is not only the newest out of the, I think there's like 10 facilities statewide, but it's also the largest, and, uh, and yet it really opened in 1987. So right there you start and think, my gosh, there must be problems that are developing over the years. And sure enough, there is a record of problems. Kevin actually cites a 2003 master plan for Halava, already citing uh, leaking roofs uh, and deferred maintenance. And uh, family members of inmates uh, privately tell Kevin that when it rains, the, the water leaks through the light fixtures. Uh, and as you know, we've had, uh, finally we're getting some rain uh, lately on Oahu. So a serious problem. Uh, and yes, the newest structure, it sure doesn't look new uh, anytime you visit there. Well, uh, a lot of these problems uh, were brought to light because of this uh, commission, right? This oversight commission that normally pokes around over there and uh, just to right. check this to see how everything's going. A fairly new organization that the legislature set up in, in no small part because of the chronic problems with our jails and prisons. It's the Hawaii Correctional System Oversight Commission. And the reason they found out about these leaks is because they actually toured Halava in October. And um, they were then at that time told that some of the cells had gone weeks, perhaps, without uh, any electricity. This is coming from Kristen Johnson. Uh, she's the oversight coordinator for the commission. Uh, it's possible that even some of those cells went months without any help. Apparently, it's difficult to get electricians into the facility to fix things and, and to keep it fixed. Um, but Kristen Johnson is warning that this is not a good thing. You could actually be violating federal correctional standards. Um, you could almost call it cruel, uh, cruel treatment. Yeah, I mean, being left in the dark for who knows how long. <laughs> uh, yeah, it doesn't sound great. And and the other thing, too, is, um, you know, uh, this is not the only problem that we're seeing, right? I mean, there are lots of uh, other deficiencies at some of the other uh, jailhouses. Exactly. And I can tell you with Halava, there there is daylight that comes through these windows, but that's during the day. And it's not exactly a panoramic view, if you will. This is a correctional facility. Security is high. Uh, and the cells themselves are about 80 square feet. 
at Halava, and they typically house uh, two inmates per cell. As of just a couple of weeks ago, the, the census, the count there at Halava was 819 uh, prisoners. So you can just imagine, do the math there, it was 20% of the cells. Dozens and dozens and dozens of people uh, without power uh, for uh, uncertain amounts of time. They still haven't figured out what's going on. Yeah, I mean, this is not something new. It's uh, basically deferred maintenance, right? They just didn't take care of it um, decades ago, and the problem just gets worse. Right, and as you know, there's been the effort to uh, relocate OCCC uh, near Halava, but that's got its own uh, problems, including a, a big price ticket to make that happen. And But it is, I think, the key thing is, is money. But unless people are made aware of it, I think it's fair to say that the legislature isn't always happy about throwing more money at the prisons and jails here. Uh, and there is, of course, that uh, that group of people that wants to advocate for rehabilitation. Maybe we shouldn't be sending so many people to jail and prison. But fundamentally, it is a, a deferred maintenance problem. Right. Well, yeah. We The last thing that we want, though, is federal oversight and a takeover. <laughs> so we better yeah, uh, yeah. hurry up and do something. But thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beat's Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story online at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Many know that the main Hawaiian islands we inhabit are only eight of the 132 islands, atolls, shallow banks, and shoals that make up the entire uh, archipelago. Our island chain has grown considerably over time as the tectonic plate has slowly shifted its position, allowing for the underwater hotspot to form more land. From the island of Hawaii in the southeast to Curie Atoll in the northeast, the chain stretches more than 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers. With all of those islands and other geological features, you might wonder how much land it totals. So, for today's Backyard Quiz, what's the entire land mass area of the Hawaiian Islands? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. NareedHawaii.com. Migrants from Africa and the Middle East take a dangerous route to get to the border of Latvia and Belarus. It involves the risk to die or to go missing. Once at the border, another obstacle. As you can see, we have two fences. It's like two level of protection. Latvia rushes to secure its border while refugees try to enter. Next time on The World. 
beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply Ohana with tips for Oahu households and businesses to help reduce water waste, such as fixing leaks. Learn more at boardofwatersupply.com. We wrap up our StoryCorps series honoring those who serve their country. If you've been in the military, you know the impact that a chaplain can make. That's the focus of today's StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative with HPR host John Zack. It's the last of a series of local stories collected from across the islands. It's a powerful story. Take a listen. This is StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative. As a young man, Stephen Jensen dedicated himself to helping others. He noticed that veterans returning from Vietnam were having difficulty with civilian life. These observations helped to inspire Jensen's desire to become a Navy chaplain. Here he is with his friend Andrew Gaspar. My name is uh, Stephen Jensen. I'm about to be 75 years old, and I'm here with Andy Gaspar, good friend. Chaplain Jensen served 27 years in the Navy and continues to serve wounded warrior and veterans today. Uh, Chaps, can can you share a little bit about uh, the early days for you? You got a call from the police department indicating that a sailor at Philadelphia Airport had snatched the weapon from an officer, fired around, and ran into a construction trailer, uh, was threatening to kill himself and others if the Navy didn't release him immediately from active duty and he wanted a signed document. Uh, So they asked that a chaplain come and talk to him. Uh, The district chaplain wanted to find out what denomination first. Well, as it turned out, the individual was Lutheran, and that's my denomination. I was tasked uh, with basically no training and uh, went over to the trailer. He opened the door a bit, saw me, understood that I was the chaplain there to respond to him. And so with a weapon pressed against my forehead, uh, brought me into the trailer and told me that he wanted me to give him communion and absolution so that if he did kill himself, then he was assured he, in his words, would go to heaven. So I told him I needed a little time to get the materials from the base and uh, that I would have to ask somebody outside to get that. So as I opened the door, the police commissioner and the assistant were there, and I told him I needed to talk with them apart from the reporters. And so he allowed me to go outside, but within clear view of him. And I mentioned then to the police commissioner that my plan was to get him to bow his head for a blessing and have them in as witnesses telling him I needed that uh, without telling him who they were. And they would then jump him and wrestle the gun from him. Uh, The commissioner came in and as the man pulled the weapon, he put his knife hand between the uh, the hammer and the weapon and it closed on his hand, uh, but he was able to wrestle it away from the individual and they were able to bring him then to the Naval Hospital and, and deal with his mental health issues. So welcome to the Navy. The StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative is a collaboration with Hawaii Public Radio. I'm your host and producer, John Zack. 
Local support for StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative, comes from Hawaii Pacific University, with military campus programs for service members and their families on base, on campus, and online. hpu.edu slash military. When our listeners have comments or questions about interviews we air, they often leave a message on our talkback line or send an email to our talkback inbox. We got a few following our recent stories about the violence in the Middle East. This came in after our interview with Mariah Abdel Fattah, whose father is Palestinian. I really enjoyed listening to this heartfelt interview. The situation in Palestine is out of control and often displayed wrong in the media. I appreciate that you interviewed someone whose family is living in Palestine and that your station is making an effort to raise awareness of how Palestinians view the conflict. Mahalo Nui Loa, Mandy. We also got a few letters following coverage of the Palestinian rally in Honolulu. The stories I heard on the radio today were so moving. I had no idea people in Hawaii were experiencing this. My heart goes out to all the Palestinians. It's sad, but it's very similar to Hawaiian land. Hawaii is also occupied territory. More stories about Palestinians should be broadcast. Thanks for sharing. Chris Wells. Longtime HPR listener, first-time writer, I want to thank your news department for your story on the rally outside Ala Moana calling for freedom for Palestine. The speakers you selected gave excellent interviews, very informed and impassioned. I want to thank you for amplifying Kanaka Maoli voices in the final section. Mahalo, Sorcha McCary. Hello. I was happy to hear news and discussion regarding Palestine on the radio today. I think that this is an issue that is important to the people of Hawaii, and we deserve to have our voices heard. Being able to share news and information sparks discussion and understanding of the reality of what is happening in Gaza, the West Bank, and the Palestinian people. I also think it's important to point out that calling for a ceasefire and a free Palestine is not anti-Semitic. A free Palestine means resisting settler colonialism. Thank you, Maya. Thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 808-792-8217. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Lauren Hana Chai, The Five Senses, an exploration of Korean-American identity, loss, and healing. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. Hello, this is Sabrina Tavernisi, host of The Daily. Join us for an in-depth look at the world's biggest stories. Catch The Daily, Monday through Thursday at 1.30, here on HPR One. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong.
than 30,000 Kapuna across the state are living with Alzheimer's. Consider this, almost double that number are their caregivers. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with L.J. Duenas, Executive Director for the Hawaii Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, to talk about providing help and hope to families. Duenas explains that dementia is the umbrella term used to describe a range of neurological conditions affecting the brain. Alzheimer's is the predominant type of dementia. About 60 to 80 percent of all dementia cases are Alzheimer's cases. And so what happens to folks is in the brain, proteins develop and then cause disruption in communication that then leads to cell death. And Alzheimer's, you know, unfortunately does impact our community immensely. There are 31,000 kupuna who live with the disease, documented diagnosis, and 65,000 or more are their caregivers. You know, this disease is very expensive. It is actually the most expensive disease to treat and manage and care for in our state. It varies from thousands of dollars to tens of thousands of dollars a month for loved ones to put their parent or grandparent or spouse either in a nursing or care facility or even having someone come into the home to provide care. We're fortunate though that we have made inroads in working with state and county agencies to really focus on ways that we could take care of our kapuna now, raise awareness, provide or put in place an infrastructure that is going to support those who may be impacted by this disease in the future and taking care of those who are impacted today. What are the signs to look for? So the first sign to look for is the forgetfulness of things that happened more recently. There's also changes in behavior. There's the inability to retrace steps. If you lose your car keys, you can typically, you know, trace back the steps on I was in the kitchen or I was in the bedroom. But for people with Alzheimer's, they lose that ability to retrace steps. They lose track of time and place. And so we encourage folks to visit alz.org slash 10 signs to read and learn about the 10 warning signs so that they are able to seek out professional assistance or guidance from their doctors if there's any concerns. It's hard for them to backtrack and recall like, oh, what was I just doing five minutes ago? But long-term memory is still pretty sharp? Yes, which surprises so many. And it has to do with the part of the brain that is first impacted by the accumulation of proteins, right, that impact cell communication that lead to cell death. So long-term memory, like our sense of smell and our ability to remember music, or if we have the talent of art, you know, those stay the longest. If you had the chance to watch the documentary about Tony Bennett, who unfortunately passed away due to Alzheimer's, you know, he was a very quiet man at his later years. But when you played music, he lit up. He smiled because he remembers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And many people still do remember music. They remember how it made them feel and how it made them happy. Right. And it is amazing how the brain works. Mm -hmm. Research is there showing that that part of the brain is the later part to be affected. Yes, yes. And, you know, it may vary from patient to patient, but for the most part, you know, that does stay intact. In fact, Manoa Cottage, they have music therapy for their residents who live with Alzheimer's or another dementia. And so they have found much success in using that to assist with any challenging behaviors or agitation or depression. 
which you know is experienced by mm. people with Alzheimer's. Okay, what sort of resources are available for families, caregivers, who are dealing with Alzheimer's? Sure. So first and foremost, you know, we have information and resources that provide caregivers with what they should know. We have a library of brochures and pamphlets online and in our office. Obviously, we can also mail these to caregivers that just provide reading material so they can understand the disease. We also offer care consultations. So if there is a family that may need additional guidance and having to speak with a dementia specialist, the Alzheimer's Association offers a 24-7 helpline that's available all day, every day, 365 days a year, staffed by dementia specialists. And so anyone can call us 800-272-3900. So it's supporting that caregiver. Yes. We have dementia specialists and staff on all islands that can assist families, whether it's in person or virtually. We offer support groups, and these support groups are lifelines for many families. You know, I participate in many of them, although I'm not a caregiver, but I've learned so much from these caregivers who share their challenges, who share their successes as well. And we've learned so much from them that we've taken some of their challenges and made them our policy priorities to ensure that we can support them and those that are to become caregivers. We also offer a caregiver conference on a yearly basis. So next year we offer one in March. So we bring down a national expert on dementia, coupled with experts here in Hawaii to talk about ways or different topics that affect caregivers or people living with Alzheimer's that has been very well received. And so we broadcast that as well for the neighbor islands. And I also did wanna mention that we offer caregiver respite financial assistance particularly for the Maui families that have been displaced or impacted by the fires. So that's still ongoing. We still have funds to support caregivers in Maui. So we hope that people may take advantage of that, you know, to support them, even just to take a break. I mean, these caregivers, you know, they're superheroes. They give so selflessly and they just need time to make sure that they're staying healthy as well so that they can continue to provide the care for their loved one with Alzheimer's. Right. How does that work? So the grant provides financial assistance up to $2,500 and we pay the provider directly. So families who may want to take advantage of this program, they would apply online and they would then seek out caregiving resources. So the responsibility in finding the caregiver is on the family because they know what may be available in Maui. So they may also hire a family or a friend who may be familiar with the family situation and familiar with the care recipient or the person with Alzheimer's. Mm. So we would then pay for those types of services. Okay, I see. And just as I was like doing research on this topic itself, I came across Maria Shriver, former First Lady of California. She founded the Women's Alzheimer's Movement. So does this disease affect women more than men? It does. You know, we know that majority of caregivers are women. We know that women live longer, so they are prone to more age-related diseases like Alzheimer's. I think that there's still research that's being done to understand the biology of how this impacts women as well. Okay. And also, Maria and her son Patrick started the company Mosh, a protein bar for the brain. For them, they're saying that there is this connection between health through food on the brain. Can you speak to that? So we know that what is good for the heart is going to be good for the brain. We also know that physical activity is 
the best thing you can do to make sure that you are um, healthy and that your brain is healthy as well. We also do fund studies that focus on lifestyle, physical activity, you know, healthy eating, other healthy habits. And although that study is not complete yet, you know, we do know that there's a huge correlation with, with how, we, um, how we live and how our lifestyle does impact our cognitive health. Right. And it is one of those things like until you yourself are touched by a disease, this is kind of like out of sight, out of mind. But this is something, too, that we, if we're more aware, we kind of know to hit it earlier. So to be healthy for ourselves, to be proactive, to take care of our mind health as well. Yes. So there are therapies now that have shown to delay the onset or delay the progression of this disease, which means that these therapies are disease modifying. So we encourage people to one, if you have any suspicion, whether it's for yourself or your loved one, that they may have Alzheimer's, another form of dementia, um, or appear to be forgetful and doesn't seem to sit so well with you, it's not normal, um, see a doctor because there are some health issues that are reversible, but if they do have Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment, there are drugs that could potentially help them and save them years. So, you know, we, we want to make sure that people know and get diagnosed earlier so that they could take advantage of these therapies. Now, these therapies are not a cure, far from it, but we're, you know, heading in the right direction. And we hope that as science progresses, that there will be opportunities for better treatments and hopefully a cure. But until then, there is care. And that's why we are here to support caregivers and their loved ones with the disease. And that was LJ Duenas, Executive Director for the Alzheimer's Association chapter here in Hawaii. He was talking with HBR's Lillian Song. Fundraising walks have already been held in three of Hawaii's counties. Maui's event will be held on Saturday, December 9th at Queen Kahoumano Center. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. Akakiki, or Kauai Honeycreeper, is uh, the subject of a new documentary titled When Silence Becomes the Song. It was directed by University of Cincinnati digital media student Ella uh, Marcel. Marcel grew up on the Garden Isle. She spent two weeks back home this summer hiking mountaintops and documenting the work of scientists trying to save the last of the gray and white songbird. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked with Marcel about the project. I read somewhere that with the population of the Akikiki almost dwindling to nothing, that their call is missing from right. the you know the day-to-day noise there on Kauai. Is that something that you can talk a little bit about? So I know back in, I want to say 2010, their populations went from 1,000 and then just to like staggering 40 individuals in present time while we were filming this documentary, which is a drastic drop. And originally, this bird, the Akikiki, was as common as the mainland's pigeon. It was basically everywhere from mountain tip all the way down to the beaches. And unfortunately, 
their populations have dwindled down so low, and it's mostly due to mosquito populations. So mosquitoes are invasive, and they were the main reason that this species has basically passed away, unfortunately, and it's due to avian malaria. So a lot of these mosquitoes, they carry this disease, and they spread it, and these birds, even though they've developed for thousands and thousands of years, they unfortunately have not created an immunity towards the avian malaria, and so they just drop like flies. And that is why a lot of these remaining Akikikis, they take refuge up in the mountains because it's colder climates, and the mosquitoes are not a fan of the colder climates. However, unfortunately, due to climate change, with the warming of the entire earth, unfortunately, the mountains have also gotten hotter, essentially trapping the birds in one space, and the mosquitoes have just been plucking them off one by one. And so what spurred you to make this documentary? My passion for this bird, more for this project as well. I grew up on the island of Kauai, and I hate to say this, but I have not really heard about this species. Even though I've grown up on the island, it was not a bird that was greatly talked about. You didn't really know about. It wasn't until this project that I actually heard of the Akikiki. But now that I know of its existence, I want others to know that it exists as well. It's this gray little bird, and it's very heartbreaking that not even people on the island know about this bird's existence. Some people just don't know it's there. And so what I'm hoping to do with this project is not only create awareness for the species, but to help try and rally up some hope. My main goal for this documentary is to have um, local communities take actions on the issues that matter most within their own backyard. So I'm hoping the Akikiki is something very important to this community, and I'm hoping that if we're able to take matters on local issues, then collectively we can lay the foundations down for a collaboration effort around the world. Like say in India, it's there's a specific species that matters to them. They work with their community and try to rally up and bring passion and try to create legislation that helps make that species population grow up, I'm hoping that can help inspire somebody to take action. And it doesn't have to be something grandiose. It could just be like, at least for this bird species, I know we've had the Resist Extinction Campaign, or we've also just had the official Hawaiian Honeycreeper Day that just passed on August 8th. So just little things like that, bringing awareness to people, like having attention to it can help come about and create more change for it. A lot of people do care about their environment. And one of the things I'm really happy about is that it's very youth motivated, especially for this documentary. During the legislation for the Hawaii Honeycreeper Celebration Day, we had, like I saw on the video, there were so many youth that were speaking about the importance of these birds to them. So it's very... It, it really warms my heart to know that there are a lot of people and especially a lot of youth who care about this and are actively taking action to help them. I read that you accompanied the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project in looking for the Akikiki. Can you talk about that experience? So originally, the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project, they reached out to 40 Media, and I'm a part of 40 Media, and they were asking if we could help work alongside them to document these birds and their effort towards collecting the last 40 individuals. And of course we signed right on. So it was pretty hands-on. I mean, you were out there 
in the forest, on the mountain, actively looking for the bird? Oh, yes. Actually, so this was in the middle of my spring semester at the University of Cincinnati. And it was pretty, it was pretty crazy because we had, to, I had a spring break and then I had to cut into a week of my school and then internship. But this is a emergency passion project that like it needs to be done immediately. So of course, my school could wait a week for that. Yeah, no, I flew in immediately. And then the next day we just took off for the mountains up to the Alakai Plateau. That's where we filmed. And let me tell you, the terrain is intense. I love walking. I love exercising. That has to be the most brutal workout I've ever been on. Literally, it's so, the the area is so thick and dense. You have to like climb on your hands and knees to go under a bunch of logs. You have to like climb over things and there's just sheer cliffs on certain sides to you. So you have to make sure you don't slip and fall. And the Alakaya Plateau is very rainy. It's like one of the wettest spots on earth. So you just have to hope you don't slip and fall. But at the end of the day, you get to see a bird with your own eyes. So it's, it's all worth it. I imagine that would probably be one of the highlights of your college experience. Maybe, maybe the highlight. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I oh, just to hear those birds with my own ears and then see them flutter by there was a couple like EEVs and the LFIOs who like flew around us as we were filming and there's this one moment on camera where like I just my mouth goes wide open and my eyes are like saucers and it's because the bird is right next to me and I'm like oh my goodness right here so I'm just I'm hoping I can project some of that passion and excitement onto onto the camera so people can also get excited about this bird as much as I am The state recently released incompatible male mosquitoes on Kauai to try and stop the spread of avian malaria. What are your thoughts on this method to try and save our endangered birds? I am in support of it, and that's mostly because there's a lot of science going on behind it. A lot of the scientists have dedicated a lot of their energy and resources into looking at the history and analyzing the effects of it and seeing if it's safe. And I think that it's a sound practice, in my opinion. One thing, though, I'm a little nervous about the misinformation going on about it, mostly just because it slows the process of salvaging what few birds remain. I'm just hoping that more of the science behind it can be put out there. Mosquito control is the current and primary goal, for Kauai Forest Bird Recovery, their priority are these birds and salvaging what few species remain. I trust Kauai Forest Bird Recovery. I trust the science that they've done and all the data they've collected. And I'm sure that it is sound, especially after hearing all of the, when you were watching the legislation that went behind while we were filming this documentary and editing it, the amount of scientists who were explaining how they approved it, how they thought it was sound, how the science was sound, I, you have to trust in your scientists and you have to trust that they are credible in what they're saying. Can you tell me when the documentary will be available to, to view? As of now, we've already had a community screening. Ironically, the day we had the community screening, it was the same day that the Lahaina fires started, oh, which wow. was wild. 
one of the main goals for the documentary is to send all of the birds that are rescued to a sanctuary in Maui. And thankfully, even though the Lahaina fires occurred, none of the birds were harmed, so they were safe in the sanctuary. So that we can count our blessings on that. That's in terms news. of the the release date for this official documentary, as of now, we're still editing, we're finalizing it. Now that we've had all the community feedback, we're taking that into account. And I'm really excited with the changes that we've made. I cannot wait to have it. Hopefully we can have it posted at um, either HIF or some other environmental festivals, the documentary festivals. So we'll see how that goes. And there's so many endemic songs that have gone quiet, and I'm really fearing the day that they will all just be gone and it will be silent everywhere. So I'm really hoping with this documentary, it can help bring about positive change to keep those few voices, those few songs that remain up in the mountains. Ella, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. That was Koi High School alum Ella Marcel talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. They were discussing her documentary on the endangered Akakiki entitled When Silence Becomes the Song. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Though not your standard songbird, the wild turkey's gobble, gobble, gobble has been charting at number one in the bird world for 200 straight Thanksgivings. You can hear the smash hit on today's Manu Minute with University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. Wild turkeys are native to North America and were imported to England by merchants from Turkey in the 1500s, which is apparently how they got their name. Also known as Pelehu in Hawaiian, they're the first birds brought by Westerners to Hawaii way back in 1788. That original flock may have died out, but they've been reintroduced for hunting on most of the main Hawaiian islands a number of times since then, most recently in the early 1960s on Hawaii Island. Today, wild turkeys can be regularly seen in open woodlands and pastures, usually at higher elevations on most of the islands. Turkeys of both sexes make a variety of clucks, cackles, and yelps to communicate different sorts of information to other turkeys. But that gobble sound that we all associate with turkeys is actually only produced by the male, and usually during mating season to let other females know he's in the area. Turkeys mostly eat tender green plant shoots, as well as various seeds, fruits, grain, and insects. There's been strong scientific evidence over the last couple decades that birds are actually feathered dinosaurs, which means that all dinosaurs didn't actually go extinct. Even more recent phylogenetic evidence shows that the birds most closely related to feathered dinosaurs are in the order known as Galliformes, which includes turkeys. So, when you see a turkey in the wild, you might imagine you're looking at a modern-day dinosaur. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. 
Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a group of people with a passion for supporting the refuge. More about volunteering at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Okay, that wasn't the turkey segment that we wanted to play for you, but you got Manoku, which we just love. Maybe we'll get the turkeys tomorrow. And it is now time to measure the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier, we zoomed out from the eight main Hawaiian islands to look at the whole Hawaiian archipelago consisting of 132 islands and atolls. The chain of tiny island masses located northwest of Ni'ihau and Kauai are known appropriately as the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. They are considered part of the city and county of Honolulu, except for Midway Atoll, which is designated as a U.S. territory. From Hawaii Island in the southeast, most tip of the chain, to Kiri Atoll in the far northeast, the archipelago stretches more than 1,500 miles and com- comprises approximately 6,425 square miles of land, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. And congrats to our winner, Mendy Hansen from Hilo. You got it right. And she <laughs> has a shout out. She, she thinks everyone who listens to HBR should become sustaining members. Well, thank you for that, Mindy. And that is our quiz. If you have an idea for one that you'd like to share, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow we have a Hanaho show featuring stories that we did out in the field. Be sure to tune in this Saturday at 4 p.m. for our hour-long StoryCorps special honoring our local military veterans. Share your feedback by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the conversation segments on our website or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.